You are listening to Terra Signals, presented by Normal Paranormal. I am your host, Justin Bamforth. The subject matter in the following episode may not be suitable for all audiences. It contains graphic descriptions of fire fatalities, burn scenes, and crime scene investigations. If you are easily disturbed or sensitive to this sort of content, then the following episode may not be for you. Listener discretion is advised. In the previous episode, I sat down with Larry Arnold, who discussed his research into the phenomenon known as SHC, spontaneous human combustion, or as he now prefers to call it, sudden human cremation. Either way, it's a very rare, but extremely bizarre event that takes place rather unexpectedly, as it renders the human body into virtually a pile of ash. Although in some cases, a random limb or body part is left behind, while seemingly doing no damage to surrounding areas of the environment in which it occurs. But what about those that survive SHC? Let's pick up where we left off. We've covered a lot of cases where the, the victims did not survive, but there have been a bunch of cases where they have survived, right? Yes, yes. At least, at least let, let's say it. it is our assessment and our conclusion that not only does sudden human cremation occur in these remarkable fatality cases, these remarkable fatal fire scenes, but... Um, we actually can come back and defend spontaneous human combustion for the survivors of partial bizarre human burnings. Yeah, let's get let's get into that. Let's uh, let's tackle that subject. The, this is an area where the, the, the skeptics really don't want to go and where they get really annoyed with Larry Arnold. But um, as as we've seen, Joe Nippo recently attest on a television show that did not involve our participation. He said, in conclusion regarding Dr. Bentley specifically, but SHC in general, these cases can't happen because chemistry can't explain them. And if chemistry can't explain them, then there's nothing mysterious about them. And it has to fall back on the work effect. In, in making that statement, in our view, Mr. Nickel has inadvertently given himself away as both not a skeptic and not a scientist, because he's, he's stating that everything that there is to know about chemistry is now known. And furthermore, he knows everything there is to know about chemistry and unable to dismiss chemistry as the means by which these fires occur, there's no mystery and nothing to discover. Well, we'll stake our reputation and our, our seven year, seven decades of living that chemists haven't yet discovered everything about chemistry that there is to discover. And beyond that, why limit your field of inquiry to chemistry? Why not consider biology, electricity, quantum physics, a um, whole raft of other disciplines that might have some significant bearing on, on, on the causes of these incredible fires, which brings us back to those who survive partial spontaneous human combustion. Yeah, which, which one do you, do you want to tackle first here? Well, let's, let's start with, with Jack Angel, because this was, the, this was the first case that we were able to investigate and conclude that 
something not only quite remarkable, but something quite unexplainable has happened to this traveling salesman who was asleep one night or probably several nights in his motorhome in Savannah, Georgia in 1974. Mr. Angel was happily married at the time, earning a good living as a clothing salesman traveling on the road. He went to sleep expecting to meet with a client the following morning. He told us that he missed that appointment. And when he awakened, he noticed that his right forearm had been burned black, burned to the bone. Yet his pajamas were not damaged. The sheets on which he slept were unsinged. He dressed himself, exited his motorhome, walked into a Ramada Inn, ordered a drink, which he said was not typical for himself, and lost consciousness. When he re regained consciousness, he found himself in the Memorial General Hospital, I'm sorry, Savannah Memorial General Hospital, surrounded by a team of physicians who were marveling about the burn injuries that they were called in to treat. We have Jack's medical records. We spoke to several of his attending physicians, including Dr. Fern. The medical records log that Jack Angel's burns to his right forearm, burns to the bone, or quote unquote, internal in origin. They were of an electrical type nature, but the motorhome was torn down to the wheelbase, looking for a means by which Jack could have been accidentally burned by an electrical failure, a mechanical failure, scalding water, because this case was going to go to court and several million dollars in damages were being sought by Jack's attorneys. The case had to be pulled from the document because they could not beat the burden of proof. We sat down with both attorneys in their office in Atlanta, Georgia. They were mystified. They just could not explain how any external known means could have burned Jack to this extent. The burn was so severe that Jack elected to have the right arm amputated just below the elbow. And we will never forget sitting in front of Jack as he waved that stump of his right arm at our face and said, it was spontaneous human combustion that happened to him. What the hell else could it have been? And we have to concur in part, as we said, because we have the medical evidence by the physicians who treated him that these burns were quote unquote, internal in origin. He didn't burn from the outside in, he burned from the inside out. He also had other physiological damage to himself, burns on his groin, uh, damage to his spinal column, to the disc in the spinal column, burns on the nape of his neck. None of these fit with a typical scalding burn injury. They would fit, however, with a quasi-electrical type burn injury, but one that could not be attributable to lightning or an electrical short or malfunction in his, in his motorhome. So the mystery of Jack Angel's burns remains to this day. We've since spoken to perhaps two dozen other individuals who have had similar, albeit sometimes slightly different cases where they too have had their bodies go up in smoke or spontaneously blister by means unidentified and unexplained. But just as an aside, by definition, if you are severely sunburned, you've experienced and survived spontaneous human combustion. You've not been in contact with a high heat radiant source. You've not been electrocuted. You've not touched an open flame and your, your skin will blister. As we said earlier, we have this from personal experience. Science knows what causes that type of burn, 
It's radiation from the sun, but it's invisible. You don't see it and you don't feel it until after the effects have taken place. This is our definition of spontaneous human combustion. It is the blistering, smoking, or burning of flesh in the absence of a known identifiable nearby external burn agent. If you can rule out contact with an open flame or caustic chemicals or radioactive material, high amperage electricity, or a nearby radiant heat source, then a first responder who encounters a case like Alan Conway, Mary Hardy Weiser, Dr. Bentley, George Mott, and the survivors, you need to consider spontaneous human combustion when you fire your fire incident report. I want to go back to uh, the Jack Angel case for a minute here. Okay. Let me just recap. Jack Angel, he's a traveling salesman. He's in his motorhome. He's going to meet with a client the next morning. He misses that appointment because he woke up and he saw his arm completely charred. One would think, right, if your arm is burning, wouldn't you wake up from, I don't know, the pain, right? But didn't you bring up a point in your research that a lot of the survivors do not speak of pain? You're correct, Justin. And this, this is another aspect of the phenomenon that belies common sense and strongly suggests to us that this is not a normal oxidizing type of fire process. This is something else. Jack Angel slept through his immolation of his forearm. Um, I think one of the reasons some people at least are so put off by the subject is because they think that these victims must have undergone prolonged agonizing pain. And that for them is understandably emotionally and psychologically distressing. And it's easier just not to have to think about it. But from the research that we've done, which obviously includes talking to survivors of partial SHC, they do not experience the type of agonizing discomfort and pain that you would expect these people to suffer. These fires are not like putting your hand on a hot stove burner. It doesn't hurt. The expression that, that's been given to us from the survivors, what does it feel like? Well, it's kind of a tingling, like when circulation is cut off in your forearm, or there's a mild heat. Um, lady in Ohio, she was standing in her kitchen one morning um, after breakfast, and she felt a mild heat up her back. She turned her head to look toward her shoulder and saw smoke coming from her upper shoulder, her back. She yelled out to her husband, who at one time had worked in a crematorium, ironically. He rushed in, took off her outer garments to discover that the source of the smoke was her flesh itself. Another similar case happened to uh, Peter Jones. He was sitting on the, on the edge of his bed in 1980, getting dressed to go to work. His wife, Barb, was still in bed beside him. Suddenly, he was engulfed in a billowing plume of whitish-gray smoke that emanated from his lower abdomen, from his crotch area. Barb sat upright and said, what the hell is that? Her husband said, I don't know. She patted on his upper thighs, on his back, on his groin, to try to put out the quote-unquote fire. The smoking eventually ended, and they sat on the bed looking at each other completely unfuddled. Um, there was no external ignition source available in the bedroom. Later that day, um, Peter Jones was in his car alone, sitting at a railroad grade crossing, waiting for the train to go by. 
And for the second time in that day, he told us that his forearms once again began to exude, this time his forearms exuded the same color of whitish gray smoke filling up the interior of the car. Peter Jones is a remarkable individual that he can remain calm under the most extenuating and distressful sources of fire. He rolled down the window of his car, vented the smoke. Uh, the train went by, the smoking stopped, and he drove home and never told his wife, Barbara, about this second incident until the two of them were watching a program on ABC television in 1980 called That's Incredible, in which we debuted for the first time on television in the remarkable fire scene of Dr. Bentley. And Peter turned to his wife and said, do you remember what happened to me last October in the bedroom? And she said, how, how, how could I forget it? He told her, well, it happened to me twice that day, and I didn't have the courage to tell you until now. So even survivors of this phenomenon are reticent to talk about it. It's been difficult, even when, when we have been able to identify these individuals, to get them to open up about it, because it's baffling, it's bizarre, it certainly opens them up to ridicule, and they don't deserve that. We treat them with the utmost respect because, in our view, they have been experiencing collectively something that mainstream fire science and modern medicine has no answer for. It, it reminds me of what we were just talking about with the Jack Angel case because it doesn't stop, or it may not stop at just one event. There may be multiple events to the same individual. There is one that you, you researched the, uh, the Frank Baker case, right? Oh, yes. So let's talk uh, about that one because yeah, that okay. Frank Baker. Yeah. Um, before we get into that, the, the name of the, the Ohio woman is Kay Fletcher and her husband's name is Mike. Uh, we knew our, our brain synapses would click in here eventually. Um, Frank Baker, Purple Heart recipient, lived in upstate New York. I'm sorry, not upstate New York, upstate Vermont. In 1974, if memory serves, um, he was with a friend getting ready to go on a fishing derby and sitting in his living room, his body, as he told us, and his friend confirms, went up in flames, suddenly and quite literally, spontaneously. His friend leapt to his feet, rushed over to Frank and started banging away at, at Frank in, in what would commonsensically be trying to put out the fire. And the, the fire, and we put air quotes around the word fire, went out. And they looked at each other in complete and utter amazement with no explanation whatsoever as to how this could have ensued. Not too long after that, the two of them found themselves, this time fishing again, now in a boat in a lake. And according to Frank and his friend, the same type of situation again happened to him. And again, fortuitously, the fire extinguished, allowing him to become, as was um, Peter Jones, a double survivor of this extraordinarily rare and nonsensical phenomenon. And we do want to stress, this is, rare, this is a rare event. We have been able to track down what we believe to number about 500 cases now of a phenomenon of circumstances that fall within the definition that history has given for spontaneous human combustion. That's a huge number of cases for something that is supposedly not supposed to happen at all. But divided into the number of people that have been alive on the planet in those several hundred years, the odds 
are very much in favor that you would never encounter, never experience, and without people like us, likely never even hear about the subject of spontaneous human combustion. But within that database, the cases are incredibly varied, even though they fall within the general definition. Um, we gave you a photograph from the British Medical Journal, uh, 1888 case of a what the journal identifies as only Mr. A.M., who since learned that his name is Albert Minster. He was found in a hayloft in a barn in Aberdeen, Scotland, early night in early 1888. Bystanders noticed smoke coming from the hayloft in 1888. This was a serious concern. You didn't want a barn going up in flames because it would take down in a city environment more than the barn. They rushed up to find Mr. A.M. laying on straw in the loft of the barn. His body looks to be intact. You can easily recognize his legs, his torso, his head. Some shingles from the barn roof apparently had fallen on his body. What is remarkable about this is first off, when the body was attempted to be, this was this is a pro, this is an etching put it published in the British Medical Journal from a photograph that was taken at the scene. After the photograph was taken, rescuers attempted to pick up and remove the body from the from the hayloft. When it was touched, Mr. Ames' body crumbled to powder in their hands. That's not how bodies burn, particularly not when surrounded by hay and straw. The person who wrote up the case for the British Medical Journal was Dr. Mackenzie Booth. He described and concluded this was an example of one of those rare phenomena called internal ignition, which is another name for spontaneous human combustion. There's another photo here that you had sent me, and forgive me if I'm mispronouncing this, it's a <laughs> Glaster's, uh, Glasters, three oh, Brit women, yes. or as you call it, the three British babes burning. <laughs> These are three photographs from a chapter that was published by Glaster's Medical Jurisprudence and Toxicology, only in the 1973 edition. It's in a chapter about the forensics of, of the effects of fire on human bodies. There's a photograph of a badly burned, uh, at that time would have been a third degree burn, now it would be called a fifth or sixth degree burn, of a person who was burned, incinerated inside a structure fire. Structure fires, by the way, normally reach temperatures between 1500 and 1700 degrees Fahrenheit. This individual was badly burned and yet he could be picked up, removed en masse and taken to a morgue for autopsy. You can see, you can make out the, the, the legs, the torso, the head, everything is there. The internal organs are there to be autopsied looking for scenes of evidence of foul play, looking for evidence of an accelerant and all that stuff. But in that chapter of glaciers are these three remarkable photographs that belie a conventional, normal fire fatality scene. We have no dates for these photographs. The publishers whom we did contact and, and who gave us permission to use these photographs in our presentations had no information about the background of these cases, no dates, no places, no names, but they clearly photographically document what history has defined as classic spontaneous human combustion. The photo on the left shows two lower legs in stocking feet intact. Above the calves is an amorphous mound of ash, and yet directly above that amorphous pile of ash, which was the remnants of the woman's body, is a tea towel draped over an open drawer. That tea towel is unaffected whatsoever. The photograph in the middle is of a lady who was seated in a chair. The chair cushion is burned away down to the springs. 
but it looks to us like the body, the torso and the lower anatomy was burned away so that the top half intact became top heavy and tumbled off the chair and fell onto the floor. Her shoulders, forearms and head are intact. At the other extreme of that anatomy are two feet intact, but everything else in between is incinerated to ashes and, un and unidentifiable material. The photograph at the right, clearly a female, nylon stockings on her lower legs. Above the knees, once again, is a charred residue of non-identifiable anatomical remains until you get to a partial hand burned off at the wrist and a skull that appears to have been severed in half, somewhat reminiscent of the Dr. Bentley fire scene. We would oh so much like to know more about each of these three cases. How old were they? Was there any history of alcohol abuse or smoking? Could there have been an arson murder? Highly, highly unlikely because again, you would need a high temperature accelerant to do this kind of damage to the body. Was there damage to the ceiling overhead? We wager not, but we simply don't know. But we have identified some 500 cases in our research over the past 40 some decade, 40 some years. We know, we absolutely do know that more cases of this phenomenon have occurred that we have been unable to identify. We've had rumors, allegations, hearsay, hints that, you know, this firefighter heard about a case when he attended the fire seminar that happened in Florida, or a case that happened in Colorado, or a case that happened in Indiana, or another case that happened in California. We've not been able to track these cases down, but we know they exist. Unfortunately, it's been easier for many in the fire service industry who, as we said about the fire inspector in Philadelphia, are so nonplussed, so disturbed, so unnerved by these remarkable fire scenes that it is more comfortable psychologically and emotionally for them to mentally, if not physically, sweep the ashes under the rug, so to speak, and forget about it, than to do what they are hired to do as professionals, which is to investigate fires regardless of how conventional or how unconventional the fire may be. That's where we come in. Even though th what we have in front of us are, is a very rare phenomenon, at least the known cases, right? There may be, like you alluded to, there may be a lot more cases. This may not be quite as extremely, extremely rare. It may be more common than we would like to admit, or maybe than we can understand or fathom. A lot of the cases, though, you know, these are these are older cases. What about today? Ha have there been any of recent times that we can point to? Yeah, we're, we're arguing we're argue first that the, all the cases that we've detailed with you are, are recent, you know, from the 1950s and onward. The most recent case we are wanting to stake our research and reputation on occurred in Oklahoma in 2013. Uh, classic case. Um, we did not include the photograph there because there are still issues with the, with the next of kin. We flew to Oklahoma. We met with the uh, first responders, with the fire chief, with the sheriff, who raised the possibility that this fire fatality was indeed spontaneous human combustion. And, oh, you can imagine the ridding and the, condensate, uh, the, the, the ridicule that he was subjected to on the Internet. He's a rube, he's an oaky, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Spontaneous human combustion? <laughs> Can't be, what a stupid sheriff he is. Well, what the critics didn't know was that Sheriff Lockhart, before becoming sheriff of Sequoia County, 
had spent 20 years as an arson investigator. He knew what fire scenes are supposed to look like. He knew how bodies are supposed to burn. And this one belied everything that he understood should be encountered at a fatal fire scene. As the fire chief told us, direct quote, this fire began in and ended at the body. Fire was extremely localized. In this case, the head and upper shoulders did remain. The lower feet, the, the feet and parts of the lower legs remained, but the rest of the body had pretty much burned through a hole in his kitchen floor. This happened right next to the gentleman's refrigerator. The refrigerator has just a minor bit of caramel color discoloration on part of the refrigerator door. No other damage. No damage, no indication of a heat source or flame source in the kitchen stove or anywhere else in the gentleman's living space. Again, no damage overhead. This gentleman, as we suggested others have, did not burn up but burned down. As we said, we flew out to meet with the first responders and desperately wanted to meet with the family members to learn more about this individual's background. He was a heavy smoker. He was a heavy consumer of alcohol uh, to the extent that we were told he drank some 30 cans of beer a day, which is <laughs> beyond our comprehension. And we like beer, but 30 cans of, a day, uh, I can't, we can't fathom that. That's as, that's as baffling as SHC is itself. But anyway, um, that's what we're told. Did he have a medical history that would help? Did he have any kind of medical conditions? Was he on any kind of medication? What was his psychological background? What was his emotional background? We're looking for any kind of clue that would help us understand what force, what factors, what situations lend themselves to producing such an anomalous fire fatality. We almost got the cooperation, but en route to an interview that was scheduled with, with the family members, we got a phone call that said, now we've changed our mind, don't come. Well, we went anyway, but could not persuade them face to face. So as much as we had hoped to have some information um, from a very recent case that might help us Get some insight into how these fires can be better explained. Um, we fell short. So, you know, we're still looking. These, case, these cases will continue to happen. Maybe we'll look out on the next one. Yeah. And the reason why, you know, I, I wanted to touch on, on, you know, fairly recent cases is because I don't want people to get the impression that this is something that came and went. This is something that is still taking place today. Yes. And yes. we're talking about cases that have already happened but think of how many cases have just happened, how many cases are, are just sitting out there waiting for someone like Larry Arnold to come and actually investigate them, to get them out to the public. And I encourage people that are here in the discussion tonight, as well as others who might be watching later, to, you know, don't, don't sit on this stuff because there may be a key piece of evidence or, or, or a key clue that can help us better understand what is taking place, and more importantly, how to possibly prevent it. Um, pull, up, pull up one of the slides with the um, death certificates, either for George Watt or for Dr. Bentley, because these death certificates are incredibly revealing and demonstrate just how incredibly difficult it is for a researcher like ourselves to find and identify these cases. Here's the death certificate for George Watt. 
Now, this is an official document filed in court to declare just how George Mott made his physical transition. Look down there at the green arrows. It says he died by asphyxiation, compounded by smoke inhalation, compounded by fire with advanced charring over several hours. Now, what do you need to determine asphyxiation? You need a trachea, you need lungs, or you need an esophagus. None of those body parts were extent. Clearly, with those body parts not present, you can't determine smoke inhalation. And as far as fire with advanced charring, advanced charring does not define a wholly dehydrated, ashen, powdered corpse. So if we had got this death certificate on, in our research and read that, we'd say, there's no SHC here. This is a normal third or fourth degree burn injury case. You find the same thing in uh, Dr. Bentley's death certificate. But once again, his official cause of death is asphyxiation compounded by advanced charring with burns to 98% of his, well, it says 90% burning of body. Whereas the deputy coroner, John Deck told us, I'd say that body was burned by 99%. And it was. A half hour de de determination for um, duration of the blaze, impossible to determine. Um, was an autopsy performed? The box is checked for yes. But again, as Dr. as Deputy Coroner Deck told us, how do you autopsy ashes? So death certificates, even though they are supposed to be official, honest reporting of how a death occurred, in cases of, that fit the definition of SHC, they don't provide a lot of help. And in fact, they're erroneous and misleading. Have you ever found any evidence to suggest that our own federal government might be interested in this topic? Oh, wow. What an interesting question. Um, what comes to mind is a, a flight back from the West Coast where we had done, done a, a television show. We were sitting with a, a gentleman and conversation eventually led to why we had been in California. And of course, we talked about SHC. And he says, I work for the government. And I, I've heard about this and his comments were quite cryptic and rather general, but he led us to believe that parts of our government does know about this phenomenon and quite possibly had done research about it. Now we do the military, the US Army has developed weaponry that can project sound waves at a distance that will cause intense internal thermal heating of the target, disabling that party, uh, disabling that person. So we, we have developed, the US government has developed weaponry, we suppose technically if, if tuned strongly enough, could actually burn the individual, not just create um, injurious, debilitating heat injury to that individual. Um, that's as far as we can go. Um, we did contact the FBI freedom of information uh, regarding information for the Reeser case because ostensibly it was said at the time that re remains of Mr. Reeser had been sent to the FBI lab for analysis. We wanted that information. Um, 
what we got back was a folder that was incomplete. We know that for a fact and contained a lot of photographs that to the best of our ability have no applicability, no relevance whatsoever to the recent fire scene. So things in the government are a little weird when it comes to the subject and, and that's about as much as we can say about it. Have you ever had, you know, since we're on this topic, have, have you yourself ever been actively told to keep quiet or stop pursuing a particular case? We think, Justin, you're the first person that ever posed that question to us. Let us ponder that for a moment. At this moment, we don't consciously recall any incident where we have been flat out told to drop the investigation. We were approached several years ago as a potential expert witness to a case that the defense thought was spontaneous combustion and the prosecution was trying to um, find an external cause for an, for an insurance settlement. Um, before we got to appear in court, uh, we were told the case had been settled out, of course, so we did not have the opportunity to testify. We don't know what that case was about. Um, that's not quite being told, shut up. Um, many of our critics would wish that we would shut up and go away, that's for certain. But um, other than being ushered out of the um, fire inspector's office in Philadelphia after we showed him the photographs and he said his response would be, I'd like to get drunk and forget about it. Uh, we were escorted out of the office, down the elevator and literally walked to the sidewalk and the door was shut behind us. Um, that's as close probably as we can currently recall being ostracized or told not to pursue the, the, the subject further. Since we are on the, uh, the subject of of alcohol with some of these cases, including the one in, in Oklahoma. There's a rare syndrome that some have called um, auto brewery syndrome, which is like, like a gut fermentation syndrome, sometimes called drunkenness disease. Um, I don't know how familiar you are with that, but is it possible that, these, that some of these subjects may have had this or like that their system was like, you know, alcohol in some way. And it just, that's what could have led to these, these flammable conditions. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, we're not familiar. We, we're not knowledgeable with that specific incident or that 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 condition. We're trying to look it up and, and see if we can learn something. Alcohol and SHC was linked in the early history of the topic up until about 1850, when a German scientist von Liebig did an experiment with alcohol-soaked tissue, because at that time it was claimed that all victims of SHC were elderly, senile sedentary and besotted drunkards. He soaked his, his burn sample with alcohol and it would not sustain combustion. Same result that we got in our numerous experiments. And ergo, Liebig said that because his, his experiments failed, alcohol cannot be a fuel for spontaneous human combustion and ergo, because we rule out that specific fuel, spontaneous human combustion itself is, is a non-entity. It's bad scientific reasoning, but he had the reputation and the scientific standing in his day that basically that has become the de facto fallback upon ever since. We have considered alcohol, um, not as an initial fuel per se for SHC, but as a means by which um, the anatomy or the physiology or the metabolism in certain people's bodies can react with alcohol to break down the water molecule, the hydrogen, oxygen, and hydroxyl ions. If that can happen, then alcohol is a secondary 
contributor to some cases of SHC. This is von Liebig, um, add alcohol, a body, and an external ignition source, and poof, you get ashen bodies. He found that, that not to be the case, and so, as we said, he ruled out SHC as, as, as anything plausible. We submit that he just used the wrong fuel. If you put water in the tank of a Lamborghini Murcielago, that car isn't going to go anywhere. But if you put the right fuel in the fuel tank, meaning you got a hell of a vehicle to play around with. And our submission is my life just chose the wrong fuel and made an erroneous conclusion therefrom. Let's get really weird here. Have there been any of um, some of the crossover connections into other aspects of Fortean research in these SHC cases? Yes. Um, we devote a chapter in our book of Blaze to the merging of spontaneous combustion events and what Fortians would generally call UAPs or back in the day, UFOs, unidentified flying objects. We have a number of cases where people having close encounters with what appears to be alien technology um, suffer severe burns. Uh, certainly, I'm sure your listeners know about the Cash Landrum case in Texas. Uh, but there are other cases far less well-known where burns have become quite severe, quite injurious. Uh, I'm sure your listeners know about ley lines, the alignment of megalithic sites in, in England and, and Europe and elsewhere. Uh, that seemed to portend the location of telluric earth energies that can do some weird things at times. What we found in our research, at least for the UK, because we have more cases of unusual fires in the United Kingdom than anywhere else on the planet, we plotted all those cases on a map of the UK and looked for patterns. And what we discovered back in 1975 was that many cases of SHC and spontaneous property combustion as well can be linked by straight alignments. Some 84% of the cases in our database at that time could be connected by alignments linking three, four, five, and in one remarkable alignment along the east coast of the United Kingdom, perhaps as many as a dozen cases of anomalous fire phenomena. Now, statistically, that is hugely significant and suggests to us that there are energies in the planet that if a person or property is at a particular spot on one of those alignments at the wrong time, that house, that body, that animal will spontaneously burn. Oh my gosh, that... It's an interesting theory, and you, Lord knows you can imagine how much we've, we've taken for that, we've been given for raising that possibility. But in science, if you put forth a theory, you look for evidence to support the theory, to confirm the theory. And what we have found since plotting these alignments in 1975 is that those alignments have led us to two cases and possibly more, but we'll stake our reputation right now on just two cases that occurred since 1975 or that we did not know about in 1975, but by following those alignments on the road and talking to people, we discovered a classic case that happened in Wales, right on one of those alignments that happened in the, in this, in the numbers of January of 1980. And another case that happened in the Lincolnshire area, which is a locus for all kinds of weird Fortean phenomena, a case that when we sat down with the fire brigade commander for Lincolnshire introduced ourselves and explained why we were there, told him that we've been led to this area thinking we might find some cases that had not been publicized. Did he know of any? And commander's first response to us was, nope, don't have any cases like that. 
But then he got really quiet and he pushed the chair back from his desk and leans back into the chair. And sitting beside him, we could just envision the gears going in his brain. He's trying to recall something. And he comes back up, sits up at his desk. He looks at it and says, no, Larry, a couple years ago, we had this fire. Neighbors hadn't seen the guy for a couple of days. They called us out. We went in the house, didn't find anybody, came back out. The neighbor said, he has to be in there. We haven't seen him outside. He's got to be back in there. This is a tar paper, literally a tinderbox of an environment. Oiled paper with the windows, stacks of newspapers, whole masses of combustible material in the house. Fire crew goes back in. Can't find him. Come back out. He's got to be in there, they're told. They go in a third time. They finally define him the third time. What they found was a pile of ash between stacks of newspapers unburned. And the fireman had literally walked through his ashen remains looking for his body. The body had burned a powder between stacks of unburned newspaper. That, how, do, how do you explain that? I mean, Not by oxidizing combustion. Certainly not by the wick effect. That is... That is unbelievable. We, we look at fire patterns and we talk to the first responders and we talk to other firefighters who have expertise in, in structure fires and, and ask them, does the, do these fire patterns make any sense to you? And if they don't, then we look for unconventional um, sources to explain those patterns. In poltergeist fires in particular, um, it's, it's easier to, to come up with a non-conventional situation. Uh, there was a fire down in Warncliffe, West Virginia that we had the privilege to go down and, and investigate. This is a, a case where the, the Gene Clemens family um, was having spontaneous fires erupt in, out of wall outlets after the electricity had been killed at the power pole of children's clothing and toys, bedding materials erupting in open flame combustion. By the time we got down there, we missed Sadly, by one day, the last documented open flame combustion event. Um, this was when firemen went into the house. This was after power had been killed to the entire property. They were milling around and were told that a mattress in a back bedroom had suddenly erupted into flame. As they're running down the hallway to get the mattress out of the house, one of the firemen looks into the bedroom, I'm sorry, into the bathroom uh, along the hallway and notices some towels hanging on a wooden towel rack. Everything's intact. They get to the end of the hall, get the burning mattress. As they're bringing that burning mattress back down the hallway, fireman looks in the bathroom and now those towels on the wooden rack are plain. They have to get those out as well. As we said, we missed being able to document and personally witness the open flame combustion by one day. But while we were down there in Horncliffe, um, fire chief got a call from another property saying that a mattress at that house was exhibiting odd thermal phenomena. We accompanied the fire crew to that house and with them can attest that in the mattress in that household, um, there was a hot spot that was moving around within the mattress. You could hold your hand above the mattress and follow the heat migrating through that mattress. Very strange, very bizarre. Um, in, in the Clements house, we would, we would it, it, the, the Clements fires fit the concept of, of a poltergeist fire, yes. As far as this matches with the thermal issues, it, it doesn't fit anything that we know about. It was kind of a standalone. 
Now, what we did do when we were down there, we asked the fire department if they had heard about any other similar fires or responded to any other similar fires. And Grimmett paused for a moment. He says, yeah, there have been a couple. And we plotted them on a topo map. And what we discovered was that most of the fires could be connected by two circles, each circle a mile in diameter. Now, once again, this, this brings us back to the concept of the cartography of combustion. But some of these very inexplicable, bizarre fires form geometric patterns, circles or alignments on the terrain, suggesting that the energy is telluric in nature. But this is, a, this is a concept that is so alien to mainstream fire science that they just don't know what to do with it, which is another problem for the kind of research that we try to pursue. The, the mental conditions of a victim, the medications that the victim might be on, uh, the nature of the property, weather, environmental factors, these things are not recorded in normal fire log reports. If we think it's SHC, we're certainly looking for evidence of intense, apparently intense high heat, and yet the absence of the kind of surrounding damage to combustibles that such a high heat source should have produced. We're looking for the absence of noxious odor of burned flesh, in these cases that fit the definition of SHC, either there is a sweet aroma present or there is no odor reported at all. We are looking, if, if there is an eyewitness, we are we're certainly we're asking for colors of the, of the quote unquote fire, the flames. One case, there's a, a bluish green flame having been reported. We have reports of a, of a silver argent colored flame, but most often what we hear are reports of a bright electric blue colored fire, the color that you see at the tip of an acetylene revolving torch when it's lit. So that is suggesting to us that we're dealing once again with not an oxidizing type of combustion event, but uh, something that's bioelectrical or some kind of bioenergy phenomenon, perhaps something at the quantum level. All right. So I, I don't want to forget about this too. The possibility that, you know, when you talk about um, like chi energy, right? And you brought up in some of these cases that were witnessed, you know, they saw this bluish green flame from the abdomen region, you know, that is where chi is believed to be housed, right? Again, purely speculation, but do you think that there's a connection to the chi? Excellent question. And the answer is a simple, unequivocal, yes. Not for all cases, but for some cases, absolutely. That is a credible theory to pursue. And we have good reason to believe that in some cases, this is exactly the best explanation for what happened to some of these individuals. The reason we say that is in part documented in a chapter in our book about chi, prana, and these quasi-electrical energies that all living beings, we believe, possess. It's part of what makes the person alive. We had the privilege to meet with Gopi Krishna many years ago, face to face. He was a leading proponent of Kundalini as an energy that can broaden, enhance human consciousness. But in his personal experiences, he wrote about a time when the Kundalini in his body, the dual aspects of the Kundalini had become out of balance. And for him, it created a tremendous amount of heat in his body, he said. And with the opportunity to pursue this further with him face to face, he said flat out, had he not the conscious awareness to be able to direct his thinking back into his body and realign the Ida and Gala aspects of his Kundalini energy, he would have been a case for us to research. 
it's like all Fortean phenomena, right? Where you think you're close to solving it, and then some other case comes along and shreds all that to, you know, to ash. And it's like, ah, oh, dang! And then I gotta yeah. reevaluate everything again. Yeah, we we we've come we've come to that point a couple times. You know, we think, okay, we have a couple cases here that kind of fit the same pattern. You know, let's look at over here as the probable explanation, and then we get another case that just completely throws that aside, and we, you know. One of our critics has said, we, we ask him, why, why are you unable to assimilate and accept the research that we've compiled? And his, his response to us was quite quick and without hesitation. Larry, he said, your problem is that you've got cases that are all over the place. And we're thinking, that's the problem. Yes, it's a problem if you are willing only to consider one explanation for all the cases, but you're asking us to accept that every human being is identical, absolutely alike to every other human being. And y'all know that's not the case. Some of us are allergic to hayweed and alfalfa and others are allergic to eggs and others have no allergies whatsoever. Some of us are rotund, some of us are frail and thin. To expect that this phenomenon or a whole range of Freudian phenomena has to be relegated to one specific set of conditions is, in our view, patently absurd and most unscientific and certainly not skeptical. We've been at this, as we said, for quite a while. Didn't anticipate it. We thought this was going to be a one weekend or two weekend research project. It's turned into four decades and we're counting. Um, if our research was slovenly, if we weren't particular about the details, oh yeah, this guy burned up, okay, it's got to be SHC. Um, if that was the kind of research that we did, we would expect to be dismissed. We honestly submit to you that if you look at a blaze, you're going to learn things that you did not know about human history. You were not exposed to in your education at whatever level. When we teach about this to the fireside students at the college level, these are firefighters, some of them are insurance adjusters, uh, some of them plan to go into arson investigation. The response in those classes has been very varied. Sometimes we get no response at all. As soon as the class, our presentation is done, they can't get out of there quickly enough. Other students will hang around with a plethora of questions and astute observations and asking for more information. We applaud those people because that's how this enigma is someday going to be solved by asking enough questions and asking the right questions. Um, but it has become frustrating when we, when we deal with naysayers and debunkers who get a lot of airtime and come up with the same inane, inept, stupid explanations that can be disproven by any crematorium operator, you know, if, if people could be burned up so easily by dropping a cigarette on themselves, a crematorium operator would buy a pack of cigarettes and go to the bank and get a free box of matches, drop a match or a cigarette on the customer, if you will, walk away for a leisurely lunch and come back to find a pile of powder on the morgue table. You wouldn't be spending $100,000 on a retort and burning up 40 or 50 gallons of fuel oil, or a couple million cubic feet of natural gas, buying filters to get rid of the, the, the noxious odor, 
and accumulated to grind up bone fragments. Crematorium owners are business people. They wanted to make a profit as well as to provide a necessary service. They would do it as simply and as cheaply as they could. The reason they don't do what the naysayers say is possible is because they know they can't do it. We had the opportunity a few years ago to meet with a fire chief and a well-funded fire department who also owned and operated a crematorium, a unique professional combination. Until we met with him and sat down with him and shared with him some of the information that we are shared with you this evening, he had no idea as a crematorium operator owner and as a fire chief that bodies could burn up like did Dr. Bentley and Mary Reeser and firefighter George Mott. The fire service industry is so terrified of this subject in large part, they would rather not even consider it, let alone give it serious credence and exploration. That's their loss because ignoring it is not going to stop this phenomenon from happening, happening to others in the future. End of sermon. <laughs> How do you maintain a healthy perspective when you're studying this very disturbing topic? When we began this research, we went, as we said, we looked at forensic journals and there are some very very disturbing photographs of what can happen to a human body um, we look at this and, and and we understand why people have the same reaction to the photos that we shared with you this evening we come at this from a detached position of curiosity and wanting to find answers so the emotional aspect of these cases doesn't impact us as we understand it can and does impact others. We will admit though that when we walked into George Mott's home for the first time and we knew what had happened in the back of that 20 by 40 foot structure, it was a bit unnerving and we had to sit down and meditate and explain why we were there and what we hoped to accomplish. And that set up a completely different environment for us mentally as well as probably physically. And things went great from there on in. Um, so we can fully appreciate and empathize with why some people find this subject just too distressing to deal with. And if so, that's okay. But other than that, don't lie about it. Don't dismiss it as myth and superstition because at this point, that is revealing your own ignorance and inability to face facts, honestly. Be curious, be inquisitive, ask good questions, but don't be dismissive of the, don't be dismissive of the phenomenon and the evidence itself. Well said. One question from, from my brother here. He says, uh, any thoughts as to why the legs and feet are often the only remains? Yes, we do have thoughts about that. Um, in the classic cases of SHC, sudden human cremation, the focus of the destruction appears to be in the solar plexus area, the lower abdominal region of the body. And we believe both from intuition, from looking at the data, and from and looking at the cases that have eyewitness reports associated with them, 
The source of the energy for many of these classic cases appears to be in the solar plexus area. That brings us back to Kundalini and Ki and chakras and that kind of Eastern metaphysical stuff that Western medicine doesn't know a whole lot about, and except in being Dr. Lee Sinella out of California, recommend his books to you because that addresses the subject. Um, but if that is the locus of the energy, it appears to us that that energy, once it is triggered, once it is released, it radiates outward like a fireball, uh, perhaps a foot radius. What is beyond the radius of that fireball tends to escape damage, which is why we tend to find the lower legs, the forearms, the hand, the head perhaps. But what's in between is disintegrated in this fireball of some kind of quasi-radiant, quasi-pranic energies. That's our best answer for right now. It's argued by the naysayers, the reason you find the extremities is because the lower the legs don't have a lot of fat okay that superficially does make some sense except what happens in the cases where the legs don't exist why did the lack of fat save one leg but not the other leg or save neither leg we also have a few cases one comes from um, Vitry France in 1731 where the lady was discovered with her fingers and much of her center body burned to firebrands, i.e. dried ash, like you get uh, a burned twig in a fireplace. And yet her ashen fingers were lying on folds of her garment, the clothing unburned. Go figure that one out. This, this whole conversation tonight has been absolutely fascinating. How can people get a hold of you? Easiest thing is to go to our website, um, parascience.com. Not a great website yet. We're working on getting it upgraded, um, but that will get, get you to us, get you introduced to the work that we've done. And there you'll find our email address and you can use that to email us. We're eager to hear from anybody who's got ideas, suggestions, questions, doubts, open to doubts, um, or best of all, might have a suggestion as to a lead for a case that we don't yet know about, but would be eager to pursue. As far as getting the book ablaze, you can um, either go to the website and get in touch with us and get a copy of ablaze, or you can go to amazon.com and get it to Amazon. Thank you, my friend. So it's, it's been a pleasure. Welcome. Thank you, Justin. We'll have to have you back for a, a round two. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about that offline and okay. some other things. Very so, good. All right. Thanks so much. Take care. Good night, all. You have been listening to Terror Signals with Justin Bamforth and presented by Normal Paranormal. For more on this show and other topics of high strangeness, please visit normalparanormal.org or visit the program website at terrorsignals.com.